Well, we're not, we're not very different. I mean, we, uh, doing this podcast, we should find some areas of difference. Welcome to another episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we make you a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. When I started writing about index investing about 10 years ago, I admit to being a bit ideological. I was laser focused on costs as if they were the only thing that mattered in investing. And I tended to put all active strategies in the same leaky boat. But now after years of speaking with hundreds of investors and working with clients directly, I understand that what determines success and failure in investing is more subtle than that. Now, I remain as dedicated as ever to indexing strategies, make no mistake, but it's become clear that the fundamental ingredients of a successful plan are low cost, broad diversification, and a disciplined strategy that you will adhere to. And sometimes the whole active versus indexing debate misses that key point. The fact is there are many people who just don't feel comfortable with the couch potato approach. And if you don't have confidence in the strategy, you're going to abandon it the first time markets slump. A lot of investors take comfort in the idea that an active manager can add value by controlling risk, encouraging good behavior, maybe even adding a little extra return along the way. So even if I don't share this belief personally, I do respect it. And I do believe it's possible to be a successful active investor if you stay focused on those three ingredients, low cost, broad diversification, and discipline. The reason that most active investors fail is that they're lacking in one, two, or even all three of these. Now, Tom Bradley is an example of how you can get all of this right. Tom is the co-founder of Steady Hand Investment Funds, which is a fund company in Vancouver that just celebrated its 10th anniversary this year. Now, I've known Tom for a number of years, and he is definitely one of the good guys in an industry that has precious few of them. I should say Steady Hand is an unabashedly active shop. I mean, they even call themselves the Undex Funds because their goal is to look nothing like the benchmarks. But if you spend any time reading Tom's articles in the Globe and Mail and Money Sense and on the Steady Hand blog, you probably feel like I do that there's a surprising amount of overlap in our messages. So I invited Tom to be a guest on the podcast to share some of the wisdom that he's gained during his decades in the business and to discuss how to be a successful investor, whether you use a passive or active strategy. And joining me in the studio today is Tom Bradley, president of Steady Hand Investment Funds. So Tom, welcome to the show. But my first question is, how did you get past the guards? <laughs> so, well, um, I, I jumped through and I'm delighted to be here, Dan. Okay, Thank you. Great. So I thought I would uh, start today by asking you to tell us a little bit about your motivation for starting Steady Hand 10 years ago. I mean, with all of the huge mutual fund companies out there in Canada already, where did you see the opportunity and what were you trying to accomplish with uh, this foundation of the new company? Well, Dan, we've been reflecting on this a lot lately because we've just uh, celebrated our, been going across the country celebrating our 10th birthday. And so we uh, went back through our history with our clients and followers. And, and um, we really we really sat down, my co-founder and I, Neil Jensen, sat down, uh, well, almost 11 years ago now and said, looked at the industry. I'd come out of Phillips Hager and North as their CEO. Uh, Neil was a tech consultant. And we said, what what is it that we don't like about it as clients? And we saw fees being very high. We saw pretty mediocre performance in general, lots of good firms, but in general, reporting was non-existent. People didn't know how they were doing or what their portfolio was, perf how it was performing. And so we just felt that uh, 
Oh, and I guess the thing that was sort of niggling at me was the fact that my favorite concept in investing, and we may talk about it today, diversification, was rapidly becoming diversification. So those were kind of the things we thought if we could go at those, either eliminate those things we didn't like, or at least reduce them in the case of a fee, for instance, um, that we might have something that people would be interested in. Okay. Now, I know that one of the um, pillars of your strategy has been, um, you know, active management and, um, in, in, you know, shunning indexing strategies in general, at least trying to create an alternative to them. Um, but I've always found this interesting because you and I have known each other for a while now and we've spoken together at a couple of events and things through our association with Money Sense magazine. Um, and we just have so much in common in terms of our approach to investment despite you know, the obvious difference in overall strategy. And a while back, you proposed an idea of maybe doing a piece for a certain national newspaper where, you, as you'd said, we would put down the swords for a while and talk a little bit about how, you know, whether you're an active manager or an index investor, many of the challenges that we face as investors are very similar. Now, as it happens, the editors of the newspaper didn't go for that idea because they <laughs> seem to like to stoke this active versus passive debate. So why don't we start by talking a little bit about how that debate can become a real distraction? Well, I think it, it um, you know, the, whether you're using, um, uh, well, then the debate sort of seems to focus on ETFs versus funds. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this. They are really two structures of how to implement a portfolio. And, um, but mutual funds tend to be actively managed. ETFs tend, not in all cases, tend to be indexes. So, um, but they're both valid. Uh, and the active in a way is probably a lot of the, the players in there are less valid because they've um, got away from being active or they've cluttered that mutual fund with other fees or other things or mandates in it that, that get in the way of delivering performance. And so our philosophy indexing is really was done tongue in cheek for sure, you know, in the face of this trend towards indexing. But to say that if 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 somebody as an active manager got rid of some of those things that get in the way, corporate agendas, uh, trading too much, bulky portfolios that are, own everything in the index, closet indexing as we call it, we could indeed have at least a good chance. And I think, and we have over 10 years, have delivered better returns in indexing, not by much, but a little bit. But we at least have a shot at doing that um, if we get rid of some of that those barriers, as I call them. So it's at the end of the day, and, and you, where you're going with this is the, the factors that are way more important are how clients behave, how they use the ETFs or the mutual funds. Yeah. One of the things that, that attracts me, I mean, to, to your philosophy, like again, outside of the investment strategy is the clarity and the simplicity, you know, that you present as an investment approach. Um, you offer five different funds plus a sixth one that's a, a balance fund that holds the the other ones as underlying holdings. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's such a simple menu, right? I always say these days that my, my favorite way to, to have dinner these days is to go to a restaurant that has three or four items on the <laughs> menu because I, I find being overwhelmed with choice usually leads to poor decision-making and a lack of satisfaction with those decisions. So, but are you ever confronted you know, the way I am from time to time with some pushback from investors who think it's too simple, right? Especially high net worth investors. It's like, I need something more complicated than this. What is this three or four funds, right? I want to have 10 or 20 to choose from. 
Um, we don't, you know, we don't get much feedback. I guess, you know, we're sort of self-selecting with our clients and they're coming to us for hopefully the right reasons. But I, you know, to go back, so when we started Steady Hand and we literally 11 years ago, we're starting to think about what we do. I thought we would have 12 funds, 10 to 12 funds coming from a firm that had a fund for every purpose. And uh, my co-founder, Neil, is, is a, a tech guy. He put a book in front of me, a marketing book called The Paradox of Choice, mm-hmm. which looks like you've, you're nodding, you've read, and, and um, really got me thinking differently. And we said, we want to give our clients access to all the tools that are out there, you know, the different markets and the different types of securities. But boy, it's tough for them to make calls as whether they should own high yield at one point or preferreds at another or corporate bonds or whatever it might be. So we, we said, let's, let's boil it, cover the waterfront with fewer funds, but within those funds, give the managers the scope to go grab that emerging market stock or that high yield bond or whatever. So, so we haven't really limited their access to all those things that they read about and are all excited about, but we let the managers decide when they're used, those tools are used as opposed to uh, the clients. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, this mutual funds versus ETFs debate because that is a sort of one aspect of the debate that seems to get lumped into the active versus passive discussion, yeah. right? With the implication being that mutual funds equals active management, ETFs equals passive management. That really hasn't been true for a long time now. I mean, most ETFs that hit the market now, uh, have active strategies embedded in them. Right. Um, and there's, I think among say younger, less experienced investors, this idea that, you know, ETFs are somehow, you know, I don't know, a more contemporary tool and that mutual funds have had their day. And this is something I've always argued against because the structure, you know, ETF versus mutual fund, regardless of the strategy and the fee, which is a two different questions, but the structure um, of mutual funds actually has a number of advantages over ETFs. Do you want to talk a little bit about the advantages that that funds do offer over products? That no, are I think it's a great point, Dan, because mm-hmm. because uh, and of course ETFs can be traded at any point in the day. At ten o three, you can buy a this kind of fund or that kind of fund. But clearly, we are, and I think you're focused on long term investors and building a portfolio, a low cost portfolio, gives you access to the markets, and so. One of the advantages certainly is that instead of having to know how to trade and have a brokerage account, et cetera, for a fund, you get valued at the end of every day and you get the price exactly to four digits, four decimal points, the net asset value. So there's no doubting or wondering whether you got it a good trade or not. So that's that's certain something that the, the bookkeeping of funds, I think, is simpler. And I know you've written and talked about uh, some of the aspects of taxes and when you've got an ETF portfolio, I think it is it is much simpler how we uh, using funds are able to report to people. And I think uh, we're both big believers in sort of regular contributions and what we call in our firm, and I think most people call PACs or pre-authorized contributions, you know, money out of your, your checking account the day after the paycheck comes in never see the money. It's a very disciplined way to invest. And I think for small amounts um, and monthly amounts, I think funds do lend themselves better to that. But uh, they both have advantages and disadvantages. Um, uh, They're different structures. It just depends what kind of investor you are and what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, One of the other areas that I think we have a lot in common in terms of our approach is this idea of long-term diversification. So um, 
your the term that, that your firm often uses strategic asset mix or SAM as you call it. And this idea that you should have some exposure to the major asset classes all the time. So Canadian, US, international equities and some fixed income in a balanced portfolio all the time. Um, we could talk a little bit about some of the differences. I would say that with uh, an indexing approach or the couch potato approach that we recommend, those targets stay pretty fixed. So if you're, right. you know, 20% Canadian equities, then you're 20% Canadian equities more or less all the time. Whereas with the, um, you will offer, say, your managers the opportunity to sort of tilt one way or the other based on valuations. So do you want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the importance of that uh, That. Um, Principle? Well, we're not we're not very different. I mean, mm -hmm. we uh, doing this podcast, we should find some areas of difference. But I I think we we generally want to be uh, tracking a long term SAM with our clients. Um, uh, that's overwhelmingly our bias. But I I do think we we charge our managers with act, reacting to extremes in the market, extreme overvaluation, undervaluation, and in the founders fund, which I oversee, we do that too. So. Um, but an example of the Founders Fund would be it's a 60-40, 60 equities, 40 fixed income fund. I am very, very happy to leave it at 60-40 and have clients gross to me that I'm not doing anything mm -hmm. um, if I don't see any extremes. We have not been on 60-40 for a, a good while because we think we are in, in a very extreme environment in, in terms mostly of rates. I mean, stocks get overvalued, undervalued. We're we're a little lighter than sixty today because of where stocks have gone and where valuations have expanded to. But um, our biggest bet, if you will, in that fund and deviation from our long-term SAM has been more on bonds, where we we do find a lot of risk going with a pretty modest return. So we've dialed that down. But I, I'd say um, we we aren't in the business of getting in and out asset classes, uh, but we will fine-tune it. We will sort of try and get approximately right by, you know, adding a little here, subtracting, but it's it's all around that long-term core. Okay. Now, in terms of that mix between stocks and bonds, this is really something that uh, I've certainly heard from investors over the last, well, I feel like I've heard it on and off since about 2009, but it comes and yeah. goes in waves. And this is uh, the idea that bonds just aren't even necessary anymore. With interest rates as low as they are, um, they're not appealing in terms of potential returns. And they're hugely scary in terms of risk because, of course, interest rates have nowhere to go but up, as we've been hearing for many years. And when they go up, the bonds are going to lose value. And yet, you know, you seem to have a um, conviction that it is something that still needs to be considered as part of the portfolio. So what's your view on bonds as part of that long-term strategic asset mix? Well, I agree that the returns are going to be modest. I think one of the, the uh, uh, I don't make any bones about it, the, the current yield of the bond market is about 2%. And that is a very good predictor of our bond returns over the next 10 years. So, you know, you're right. Why own it? Well, it, it really boils down to diversification. And bonds are, even at these low rates, I think still a diversifier. And an example of that would be where we have a pretty serious market uh, meltdown or correction. And you'll see generally that happens. It still happens today where bonds will go up in price. And so you have a bit of a counterbalance against the volatility that comes with the big risk component of your portfolio, which is stocks. So the, st the, the minute you step away from uh, government or just high quality corporate bonds, call it sort of core bonds, the minute you, you get more exotic in the fixed income area, high yield, other str strategies that, that you might read about or things like dividend stocks, 
or I guess preferreds, I've skipped over preferreds. As soon as you do that, the diversification factor is reduced. Now your return over 10 years may be higher, but it'll be a bumpier ride. And so I, I, um, I, your readers that are, are on you about that, I understand that view, but I still think we need to have that level of diversification. And it's, it isn't as good a diversifier as it was when rates are higher, but it is still a factor. Yeah, it's interesting because it, you're right in the sense that um, bonds are actually probably provide less diversification benefit than they used to because the chance of them going way up in a market value or in a market crash, for example, is lower than it used to be. Um, but at the same time, there really is nothing else that provides that level of volatility dampening, if you will, in a portfolio, except maybe cash. But I mean, if you want to go down that road, then we're saying, well, cash <laughs> yields even less than bonds. So if you're, if you're, uh, reluctance is to re- uh, invest in something with a low yield. I'm not sure how you can make a great argument for cash. Well, but, we do we yeah. do hold uh, the Founders Fund, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, our balance fund is 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 higher than I'm comfortable owning and in, in holding in cash, but it is really a, a positioning versus bonds, but still wanting some diversification. So, if I was crazy, uh, we thought stocks were crazy cheap, then we wouldn't have as much cash. But we're sort of our normal kind of stock weighting. And yet we don't want to have quite as much, um, you know, the bonds bring diversification, but they have other issues around them. So we we have used cash, despite what you say, um, with the idea of that diversification and obviously keeping some powder dry for when uh, we may need it. Okay. Um, to expand on this idea of diversification, um, it's not just a matter of building a portfolio with multiple asset classes, but also um, diversification within an asset class. So this is an area where I'd say our approach differs quite a bit. And that is, you know, we believe that if you want diversification, for example, in the U.S. equity space, the way to get that is by buying hundreds or even thousands of stocks and by in the form of an index fund. Right. Whereas you would argue, I think, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but um, if you if your goal is to outperform the market, then you need to concentrate much more than that. So, can you talk a little bit about your approach to concentration and at what point you risk? not being diversified enough? In other words, how many stocks do you need to hold in order to have true diversification? Well, there's been all kinds of studies done and, and uh, they seem to range between uh, the high teens and the low 20s. If you own, you know, say 20 stocks, if you add a 21st, the, the diversification benefit is very de minimis and, and doesn't add a lot, maybe a tiny bit of, of diversification benefit. So, um, but we don't own that few, but we, if you own our three equity funds, you'd own about 75 stocks. Canada, U.S. International, small, medium, large, across the industries. I guess where we think about diversification is having that geographic and that industry diversification and not getting uh, – the S&P you've heard to in the U.S. Is, is a very broad index. In Canada, comparing to the TSX, for instance, is a very distorted index. It isn't really, I don't think, a properly diversified portfolio, financial services energy resources being the dominant pieces. So we try to think of, I think more practically, what is make sure that we have all the different economic forces represented in our portfolio, whether it's actually in a category that's, you know, um, uh, the industry is, is designated or not, and uh, look at it that way and, um, and not get too hung up on what the actual index weightings are. 
So index benchmarks are something that come up a lot in this active versus passive discussion. Um, one of the most prominent measures of active management, at least at least in the media, is what's called the uh, SPIVA report. SPIVA stands for, let me see if I can get this right now, Standard and Poor's Index versus Active um, Report Card. So what this does, this is a... Um, a uh, report that's put out, I believe, twice a year by Standard & Poor's is the same company that uh, creates the S&P 500 index. And what they do is they categorize mutual funds um, according to their strategy, so Canadian equity, U.S. equity, international equity, et cetera, as well as large, mid, and small cap. And then they compare the performance of those funds to uh, traditional index benchmarks. And you know, since they began putting out the report, it seems clear that the majority of active funds um, routinely underperform, especially over longer terms, over one-year periods in that it's it can be pretty mixed. But over five- and ten-year mm -hmm. periods, uh, the underperformance is pretty consistent. Now, this is a measure that has been used in the media for a long time. I've used it myself. Um, you have some problems with the methodology, and I thought I'd give you an opportunity to discuss that, and we can talk about whether, in fact, those SPIVA report cards really are a good measure of active management. No, I appreciate the chance to do that. I, and I, I first would say that I think no matter if, if some of my disagreements with S&P on this were addressed, I still think that uh, uh, index funds would beat active on average over those long periods of time. And uh, so I have no, no issue with that. But I think the SPIVA is, holds, holds this reverence in the industry that I think is unwarranted. S&P is obviously a, a very... Uh, renowned company. But the, the survey is flawed in a number of ways. It compares funds that have advice charges or trailer fees built in. And predominantly in some of those categories you mentioned, they would be using fees that are uh, funds that are at two and a half percent sort of thing, one percent being for advice. Comparing it to an index that is not investable, it's, it's, it doesn't have any cost or trading costs or anything, just the index. So we would like to see them for instance, use F-series funds, which have stripped the advice out and compare them to an actual ETF. Now, would would uh, Active be suddenly running ahead of indexes? I don't think so. But it would be a much more level and field and it wouldn't be as send as extreme a message as they have. The other flaw that I would maybe point out is that in some of the foreign categories, I think they've been very sloppy in including, for instance, in the U.S. equities, hedged funds, funds that currency hedge versus ones that don't. And at times when our dollar is going dramatically up or dramatically down, it can totally skew those numbers. And uh, it's just not a, a fair comparison at all. So I'd love to see those comparisons done. I've tried to encourage a few sort of independent bodies to do a good job of that because the Americans, the SPIVA is a, is a hallowed thing in the States and they've just tried to translate it to Canada and they've done, I think they've done a very poor job. Yeah, should we make that comparison? Yes. And should, will it favor indexing? Probably. But uh, it, it'll be much fairer uh, fight than, uh, than the way it's done now. Now, you talked at the beginning of our discussion when you, um, you know, were talking about how you founded Steady Hand and, um, the, you know, the challenges of getting scale at that level. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on the robo-advice business model in Canada and the challenges that it's going to face going forward? Because I think it's going to be, as, as much as you and I both agree it's a great idea, it's a pretty difficult business to run. 
Oh, I, I agree. I, I, I mean, we have, I don't know how many we have now, but I think it will consolidate significantly into very few hands. And, uh, and maybe each of the big institutions will have their version of it. But having Dan, having built a business from zero, really, 10 years ago, we now manage about 700 million, which is still tiny in relative to these uh, big giants we, we compete against. Um, it's a tough row they have, and they don't have the margin. You know, they have very narrow margins, which is good for the client. Um, so they need to be very big organizations to pay the bills and, and make a little profit. So um, I think it's a tough road to hoe. And clearly there, there's one big guy that is advertising like crazy and really wants to get ahead and develop and really corner the market here. And we'll see if that happens. But uh, we will see a lot fewer robos uh, even a few years from now, let alone 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to definitely be an interesting space to watch yeah, over the next few sure. years. All right, Tom. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today and uh, sharing your insights with us. Thanks, Dan. And now it's time for our Ask the Spud segment where I answer questions from readers. And joining me as always is my colleague, Amanda Diel. Amanda, so what is today's question? Okay, so our question today comes from Phil who writes, our company just announced an RSP matching program of 5% of my salary. I'm concerned that I'm going to be stuck with a bunch of high-cost mutual fund options or actively managed portfolios. I assume I'll still be farther ahead if I take the advantage of the 5% match, but how do I make the best out of the less than ideal options I have? Okay, thanks for the question, which is one that I'm sure a lot of other investors have asked themselves. As Phil has recognized, he's being offered a pretty generous benefit here by his employer. If he contributes 5% of his salary to a group RRSP, the company will match that with another 5%. So if Phil earns a salary of, say, $50,000, that's a benefit of $2,500. And it's not just the free money. Employer-sponsored plans, and this includes defined contribution pensions as well as group RSPs, are really an excellent way of encouraging discipline savings. I mean, the matching program probably attracts people who might not otherwise be inclined to save at all. The contributions come off your paycheck before you even have a chance to spend the money. And in most cases, portfolios and group plans get automatically rebalanced, so they're the ultimate in hands-off investing. But the potential problem that Phil has spotted here is that group plans tend to be sponsored by large mutual fund or insurance companies, and they may only offer actively managed funds. In many cases, though certainly not all of them, those funds can carry high fees compared with an ETF portfolio you manage on your own. So if you're committed uh, to index investing, you might be inclined to ignore your group plan and invest only in a self-directed RSP instead. But this is probably a mistake. If you get any kind of company match, uh, in an employer-sponsored plan, I would suggest taking full advantage of it. So even if the plan has relatively high fees, say 1.5% or even more, the employer's contribution will probably more than make up for the added cost. Now that said, you should still build your group RRSP portfolio thoughtfully. So here are some steps that you might follow as you make your decisions. First off, see if there are any index fund options. It's actually common for group RRSPs and defined contribution pensions to include some index funds among the menu of options. Now, you might find this is inconsistent. I've certainly seen plans where there's an index fund for US equities, but not for international, or maybe there's one for bonds, but not for Canadian equities. So you might not be able to use index funds exclusively, but this is at least the place to start. 
Then you can assemble your portfolio using whatever index fund options are available. So if you plan to use a traditional balanced portfolio of 60% stocks and 40% bonds, you can just instruct your plan provider to allocate 20% each to the Canadian, US, and international equity index funds and 40% to the bond index funds. Of course, if index funds are not available in all asset classes, then you have no choice but to substitute an active fund where necessary. And that brings us to step number two, which is to look for actively managed funds that are well diversified and focused on one asset class. Now, these are the ones that are most likely to resemble an index fund in all respects except cost. So for example, if there's no index fund for U.S. equities, there probably is one that focuses on large cap U.S. stocks. So maybe that fund holds 50 or 60 blue chip companies with all of the sectors represented. Well, a fund like that is likely to be very highly correlated with an index fund that tracks the S&P 500. Now, contrast that with some other funds that might be offered in your plan. Maybe there's a healthcare fund or a technology fund or one that focuses on natural resources. There's probably a few with vague mandates like a global opportunities fund, whatever that means. Now, none of these are likely to behave anything like an index fund, so they're just not appropriate for your portfolio. In a previous podcast, we talked about the idea of closet indexing, which is when an active fund manager sticks closely to the benchmark index rather than being truly active. This term is usually used disparagingly because an active manager who charges higher fees to build a portfolio that just looks like an index fund is almost guaranteed to underperform. But in this context, if you're an index investor who is reluctantly building a portfolio from a limited menu of active funds just so you can take advantage of an employer match, a closet index fund may actually be your best bet. Another option uh, to consider is target date funds. Now, if you're not familiar with these, target date funds were created specifically for employer-sponsored plans. Each one is a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds in various proportions from aggressive to conservative. And the fund will usually include the uh, year in its name in increments of five years. So there might be a target 2025 fund and a target 2030 fund. And the idea is that you pick the one with the date closest to the year that you plan to retire. So if you plan to retire in 20 years, for example, you might choose a fund with a target date of 2035. Now, today that fund might be 25% or 30% bonds, but the idea is that it won't always have that asset mix. Instead, it's going to follow what's called a glide path, and it will gradually get more conservative as you approach retirement. By the time the target date is actually reached, the fund will be primarily in bonds and cash. Now, many group RSPs and pension plans include target date options. Uh, the most popular in Canada are Fidelity's ClearPath funds and BlackRock's LifePath family. And more recently, even Vanguard has entered this space too. Now, I think these can be an excellent option, especially because Vanguard and uh, BlackRock actually build their funds with underlying index funds. The thing is, though, if you do opt for a target date fund, you should look carefully at the asset mix and make sure it really is appropriate for you. I've found they can be quite aggressive. So if your time horizon is 20 years or so, the allocation might be as much as 90% equities. Now, in theory, that might be appropriate for someone with two decades to retirement, but not everyone has the stomach for that kind of volatility. So you might want to choose an earlier target date if you're a conservative investor. Finally, assuming that you take full advantage of your group plan, you could consider transferring money to a self-directed RRSP once a year or so. 
Now, I should be clear that this is not an option for defined contribution pensions or deferred profit sharing plans. It's only an option with group RRSPs. But many group plans do allow you to enroll in an employer matching program and then transfer the funds to an external account. Sometimes they might charge a fee for this, but in many cases you can do it for free once or twice a year. In my opinion, this really only makes sense in two situations. The first one would be if your group plan is exceptionally bad. Let's say the fees are close to 2% and the match is small or the funds being offered are unusually risky or narrowly focused. The second situation is if your RSP savings are very large. And if your group plan has high fees and you've got a couple of hundred thousand dollars in the account, those fees may well eat up most or all of the benefit of the employer match. But unless you're in one of those two predicaments, making regular transfers might just be more hassle than it's worth. So just consider keeping the money in the group plan and watching it grow. I mean, hey, it would be ideal if all group RRSPs offered index fund options. Um, Unfortunately, many do not. But even if you need to use some more expensive active funds, you should still take advantage of any matching program that's offered by your employer and then just do the best you can with that free money. Well, I hope that answers your question, Phil. Remember, if you've got an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and he may answer it on a future installment of Ask the Spud. And that'll do it for this episode. Next month, my guest will be David Thomas, editor-in-chief of Money Sense and a veteran financial journalist. As many of you know, Money Sense is a magazine that I've contributed to for almost 15 years, and it recently suspended its print edition and now exists only online. So David and I will chat about the challenges faced by the financial media today and what this means for Canadian investors. Until then, a big shout out to all the folks who helped put this podcast together. Nick Jaworski of Podcast Monster, Tara Hunt and Nicole Pomeroy of Truly Social, and of course, all my colleagues at PWL. And finally, a huge thank you to you for downloading the podcast and for all of your kind reviews and ratings. I mean, even if I'll never top Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins on iTunes, with your help, I can at least beat Preet Banerjee. Now, don't forget to visit my blog, CanadianCouchPotato.com, for links and notes on this episode, as well as hundreds more articles and resources on index investing. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.